Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, welcome. Today, we are fighting climate change with lawns. So if you don't like lawns, this is the program for you. You've got to listen to us carefully. And if you have a lawn, you have an opportunity to making a bigger contribution to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so how, can, how you can improve your lawn care to reduce pollution and fight climate change. And with me today are Jesse McIsaac. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Rob. And Morgan Berman. Hi. <laughs> Um, and today with us, we had, I had earlier today an opportunity to speak with Julia Peterson. Um, Julia Peterson is coming to us from the New Hampshire Sea Grant and from the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, and she's a program leader there. So we had an excellent opportunity to speak with her on this very important topic about how climate and lawns are all related and what we can do to minimize our negative impacts on lawns. Hi, Morgan. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And so we brought you on to talk about lawn care um, and how it can affect different health of water bodies in our area. Um, so first, I'd just like to ask sort of a question about um, why is it important that people test their soils when determining how to best do best care um, or best practices lawn care? Okay. One of the reasons that we encourage people to test their soil is, uh, especially in New England, is because there are certain... Um, soil conditions that will affect how grass grows a lot. For example, if the pH of the soil is off, then the plant, then the turf grasses are not able to pick up the nutrients no matter how much you apply or don't apply. So uh, that pH level is very important. Another thing that will make a big difference on uh, how healthy a lawn um, is is uh, the amount of organic material. And there's a, we like to see it at about 3 to 5% mm-hmm. um, in the soil, and that will make a big difference on the health of the soil as well. So a soil test can tell you both information about pH in particular and about organic matter. Great. Um, thank you so much. And does this information that you obtain from a soil test also inform what sort of fertilizers you should be using or how much or um, so that sort of help inform that? So the interesting thing about soil tests is that it can tell you about how much phosphorus is in your soil and about Mm -hmm. how much potassium. Both of those are uh, common um, lawn fertilizer nutrients. Right. It does not provide a reading on the level of nitrogen, which is probably the most common um, lawn fertilizer. Right. And that's um, one of the challenges with applying lawn fertilizer is that there's no objective measurement based on the soil for turf. That, that's absolutely interesting, especially because a lot of times um, we're seeing in New England that people over-fertilize with nitrogen because they don't know how much they need, and then it ends up um, causing a lot of water pollution, as I'm sure you, you deal with a lot at the Sea uh, Grant Extension. Um, so another question we have about um, the work at the New Hampshire Sea Grant Extension, or at the New Hampshire Sea Grant, rather, um, is why do um, you guys have on your website that you recommend high-cut grass um, in terms of best practices lawn care, and we're wondering why that is and what it does for, for the environment. Sure. So one of the cultural practices that we 
um, always encourage is that folks mow high. And what we mean by that is letting the grass, uh, keeping the grass at, at least three inches high. And the reason for that is that um, that promotes deeper roots. And the deeper the roots are, the um, the more resistant the the lawn is to uh, wear and tear, to um, periods of um, of drought or lower water. So it just makes the right. turf grass more rugged. Absolutely, and it also it helps uptake water in terms of severe storms and stuff like that. So it's definitely a healthier overall grass body than just short short grass short roots. Um, so another yeah. question we have the for grass you. Is too short. It's it's basically stressing the grass out. Right. That's that's good to know. Good for our listeners to know as well. Um, so another question we had was, um, can you tell us about any common lawn care uh, mistakes that you hear about often, and something we could dissuade our listeners from doing when they're taking care of their own lawn? So, um, one of the 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 habits or the practices that we've come across is that. When folks are going to buy product, for example, they're going to buy a fertilizer or they're going to buy some compost, um, both of which can um, be over-applied, easily over-applied and create water quality problems, mm-hmm. is that they're going to buy product without knowing the dimensions of their lawn. Right. So you... If, it's impossible to know how much to apply if you don't know the dimensions because that's how the instructions on the bag uh, relay how much product to, to put down um, so that you're putting the right amount of product so that you're getting a, a good result at the same time not over-applying. Right. So having people know the dimensions of their the area that they wish to apply, uh, compost or fertilizer, um, is really, really important. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much for speaking with us, Julia. Um, to our listeners, you can learn more about Julia's work and the work of the New Hampshire Sea Grant, as well as the New Hampshire, the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension at their website. Um, so thank you so much for speaking with us, Julia, and take care. Thanks, Morgan. That's great. Morgan, and you just talked to uh, Julia just a few hours ago. Yeah, absolutely. And Julia was really interesting because the work that they're doing at the Sea Grant Extension and the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension um, are working on sort of informing and educating families and people, normal people, about how they can best practices take care of their lawns in ways that are not polluting. Um, and it was interesting that she mentioned nitrogen as the least measurable because it's also the nutrient that we think is the most harmful, the most important to talk about, and it's the biggest polluter of water, of our waterways. So it's definitely something we'll be talking more about on today's podcast. Yes. I noticed that, you know, being at the extension service in particular, people go there when they have problems with their lawns. And so she spoke about the right kind of conditions if you're having problems and what to look for. And our approach is to just talk to, if your lawn is established, then these are the practices to do. So we don't expect you to have to go out and measure pH or um, try to assess the organic material in the soil. We're going to come back to how that... uh, minimizing the nitrogen input is going to maximize material stuff in the soil. Absolutely. And also the the thing that Julia mentioned about knowing the dimensions of your lawn seems really intuitive, but it's incredibly important because you can imagine if you don't know how big your lawn is, all of the metrics about how much to apply are based on per thousand square feet of lawn. So if you don't know how much you're working with, you might over or under apply and you might end up with a lawn that you don't want that's causing pollution. Yes, what you do is you go out and you buy the biggest bag of fertilizer and you put it in the spreader and you just spread. And 
if there's still stuff in the fir- in the spreader, you don't put it in your garage. You just keep spreading. Yeah. Uh, so that's a really important point is to um, get a sense of your size. Um, but yeah, and and knowing that we are. Uh, oh, the other thing they were talking about was grass height. Yeah. To um, cut the grass at, at three inches um, or more, and uh, that gets back to you want to have a healthy lawn, not just a little skimpy, fragile lawn. And what I thought was really interesting about that was how many benefits you get from just cutting your grass a little higher. You know, we'll go into that a little deeper more in the program, but having a resilient lawn is a healthy lawn. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so another interesting thing that we thought we would cover is, um, so we talked with Julia a little bit about things we can switch, things that um, lawn owners and people, you know, looking to better the health of their lawn and the health of the environment want to do. Um, and we've put together a little list of ways that we encourage people to switch um, that include Julia's recommendations. So we'll talk about some of those things right now. Um, so as Julia mentioned, learning about the soil in your area is incredibly important. So you don't need to fertilize for phosphorus if you have a lot of phosphorus where you live. For example, in New England, we have a lot of phosphorus. And so putting it down will only cause pollution and won't really do anything beneficial for your grass. Um, another thing that's really interesting um, is that leaving grass cuttings just naturally, just leaving them there after you trim your grass, um, can return nutrients to the soil in a way that's a little bit more natural and causes less runoff. And it's also free to you. It's your own grass, so you might as well use it. Um, additionally, putting uh, your lawnmower at the highest possible setting and cutting grass no longer, no shorter rather than three inches, as Julia said. Um, what else can we do, Rob? Well, uh, right. So, you know, she mentioned the phosphorus, and that's a real problem because phosphorus, more than nitrogen, causes algae to bloom in freshwater. And so a lot of places that are having pond scum and algal blooms are trying to eliminate uh, phosphorus from fertilizers. And normally, fertilizer will have a mixture of about 16 parts nitrogen to one part phosphorus. So there's not a lot of phosphorus in there to begin with. And so our approach is rather than pass a law saying no phosphorus in the fertilizer, we're going to say no fertilizer of this type, meaning stuff that breaks down. Uh, quickly, and we're going to refer to what we call slow release later on. Um, and uh, what other point? I guess, um, yeah, so that's really good what she had to say about uh, the different practices. Yeah. Again, once your lawn is established, um, that's where, um, you know, you can really turn it around to uh, to help out with everything. Absolutely. Um, um, and as Rob was just mentioning, um, yeah. we recommend use of slow-release fertilizer if, if, if you need to use fertilizer at all for your lawn. Um, and to do that, you can apply it sparingly, half a pound. Um, as Julia mentioned, measuring your lawn is incredibly important, and it's a half pound per 1,000 square feet of lawn. And you only fertilize either in the spring or fall. So it definitely is, it includes fertilizing less frequently and with less quantity of nitrogen, only giving your grass what it needs to be healthy as opposed to just dumping excesses of it on and making your grass swim in nitrogen, which is good for neither your grass nor the environment. Um, yeah, and one of the products that I just came on the market uh, is called Osmocote, O-S-M-O-C-O-T-E. And this is 100% slow-release nitrogen. I'm holding it here. You can hear it. I can shake it around and stuff, and it's just, it's, it's in a little um, one-pound uh, little plastic bottle here, and it looks like, you know, salt. It's got a holy top there where you can shake it out, and if you open, take off the lid at the top, then there's a little scoop in here. It's about a tablespoon scoop, 
and even smaller scoop on the other side. So this gets you into thinking about just a little bit. And so gardeners use this, and they'll take one scoop, and that's all they'll spread on like a bush or a, you know, a modest, um, a small bush, you know, like two inches or not two inches, like two or three feet in diameter or something. Uh, so this is the kind of stuff that, you know, this, this, uh, this little container is one pound. So this would cover 2,000 feet. So basically, about uh, 2,000 square feet. So basically, instead of getting the spreader out, you can take this like salt shaker and uh, just give your lawn some um, slow release. The little, the little, they are little tiny um, round things of different sizes, which means that there's a bit of nitrogen. They don't bother with the phosphorus, and often there's already phosphorus in soils. Uh, and it's coated with a polymer that makes it into like a, a tiny M&M, only it's round, and it doesn't melt in your hand. Uh, but it does take water to dissolve, even though it's called insoluble, meaning that it doesn't dissolve right away. So it gets down into the soil, and if there's moisture in the so- soil, it'll be breaking down and feed your lawn over time. But if there isn't moisture, like during the, the frost, during the winter time, or during the summer drought, then the stuff stops releasing nitrogen to the grass. And the grass is dormant then because it's not getting water and or sunlight and so forth, and sunlight and so forth. So um, it, it's really cool because it, 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 creates, it, it gets you to, um, to just put a little bit on instead of buying the big spreader and going at it. Absolutely. It's like the metaphor um, when Rob was first explaining the, the use of slow-release versus quick-release nitrogen to me. He explained it as it's as though you're feeding yourself or your kids with protein, a, a breakfast of protein, which will keep them full over a long period of time. Um, that's the slow release. It's, it's more nourishing and takes longer to break down as opposed to the quick release, which is like a quick sugar high. Um, and then you keep needing more and more. And it's not good for your kids. It's not good for you. It's not good for your lawn. Uh, but it's good for the fertilizer industry because your grass wants more and more. And so they tell you to fertilize five times a year. Um, and and that's it's just a scam because what we're asking you to do is essentially treat your lawn the way the golf courses in the town does, which is they only feed their grass when it's hungry, uh, and they make darn sure that all the nitrogen and fertilizer they put down is taken up by the lawns, whereas the fertilizer industry would have you use their fast release, and there's so much that the grass is essentially swimming in it, and most of that, nearly all of it, uh, gets washed into our waterways. And that's why lawns get a bad rap. People are saying, get rid of your lawn and put in wildflowers because your lawn pollutes. And um, the problem with that is that lawns can take walking on and wildflowers not so much. So I live in Somerville where I just have a tiny piece of grass that I walk on a lot, and um, that wouldn't work. Uh, But you don't want to just don't fertilize the grass. That's what's polluting. You're paying to go out and buy a bag a fertilizer, you might as well just shake it right into the waterways. Uh, it's like when you've got too many marbles in the kitchen floor, you don't get rid of the children. You just give the children less marbles and not during mealtime and stuff. So don't, don't over-fertilize the lawn. Uh, oh, and so we've been going town by town, uh, talking to each town conservation commission to rewrite their wetland regs so the properties next to wetlands will not be putting quick release or regular fertilizer on their lawns, only some slow releases needed. And we went to Watertown, 
And Watertown was, oh, we wrote to Watertown, and they wrote back and said, oh, no, we're all set. We're doing just organic fertilizer. And we had PJC Organics come and talk to us, and they have set us up so that we're always, well, it turns out that they're only using slow release, which is not really organic because it's chemically manufactured to get the little coating around the the nitrogen. Uh, And then I looked at the... um, the website of this provider, and yes, they've got a good product if you only apply a half pound per thousand square feet. They're recommending uh, five pounds per thousand square feet per app, maybe two applications. So that is uh, twice as much nitrogen as the bad stuff because there's so much of it. So that gets back to um, that gets back to uh, uh, where. Um, Oh, what, what, she, what Julia was saying about, you know, know how much to put down. Right. So it, it isn't just finding the right stuff. It's doing the best mm-hmm. stuff. And basically, if you have an established lawn and it looks happy, uh, don't, you don't have to feed it. Uh, however, these, these uh, 100% slow release, the coatings all around the nitrogen bits has some vitamins and, and good stuff and minerals for the microbes in the soil. And we're all about having healthy soil. I want to ask Jesse a question. Where are we? Um, so, we're going to talk about how people oftentimes criticize people for having lawns because lawns are have a sort of bad rap. As you know, Rob, we were talking about Watertown people. There's a lot of ethics and a lot of judgment that happens when people are talking about, should we have lawns? Should we have wildflowers? Should we have meadows? What should we have? Um, what was your question for Jesse? That is the question. <laughs> yeah, Jesse, why are people hating on lawns? Yeah. All right. So one of the biggest problems, of, as we have already mentioned, is that lawns create and generate a lot of nitrogen pollution. Um, you know, the first time it rains, if you're using conventional fertilizer, none of it stays in your soil. It just goes directly into the water and our water systems. Um, and this nutrient, nitrogen, is the, the main ingredient, basically, for creating an algal bloom. So algal blooms, you've Okay, yeah. (laughs) The algal blooms, you know, not only do they smell bad, not only are they gross to swim in, not only do they, you know, let you, prevent you from using that water, but they also are really horrible for the local ecosystems and environment. Um, The way algal blooms work is is with warmth and an excess of nitrogen, they, they just exponentially grow very quickly. And they kind of function as like a mat covering the surface of our, our waters. Um, and this mat of algae basically smothers all of the life below by using up some of this oxygen. Um, however, while these al- algae blooms are deadly, they only last for a few days to a few months during the summertime. It's not a persistent thing, but it is an annual thing that makes a lasting impact in our environment. Once these algae die, they are decomposed by bacteria that further decreases the already lowered oxygen supplies in the water. A result of algae blooms after they die is something called a dead zone. These dead zones have such low oxygen levels that all marine life dies. So we've seen a lot of fish kills recently, um, and it just goes to show that these, these, this pollution causes these horrible blooms that, that can kill. And another not-so-fun fact about algal blooms is there's a specific, some algae can produce uh, toxins, actually, that can poison your pets, poison the environment, 
poison poison us. Yeah. yeah. So um, you, basically, they're not good for the environment whatsoever. And um, so let's yeah, stop that. so let's stop nitrogen pollution. Yeah, that's right. And generally, algal blooms don't kill people. Although some people swimming in algal blooms have contacted uh, things that have weakened their immune system and, and, and have succumbed to it. Uh, but it, 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 it's, it has killed fish, and it, it just eats up the oxygen. And I used to think it was like an oil spill where, well, the fish just have to stay away from it. But uh, we've seen striped bass chasing uh, bait fish, and all, they swim into a dead zone, and everything rolls up dead. So um, it's, it's, it's a real bummer. <laughs> so let's... Uh, um, but yeah, that's the problem with, with nitrogen pollution is it's the main food in the ocean and yeah, for marine algae, um, whereas phosphorus is causing freshwater algae to bloom. And as Jesse said, with all the bloom in algae, it turns over and dies and, and then rots and, and that eats up all the oxygen. So it's a terrible situation. And uh, we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we're, we're going to take it a step further to learn about how that by cleaning up lawn care, how that uh, will affect our um, ability to fight climate change. We'll be right back after this. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're fighting climate change with lawns. That's right. That little lowly lawn that you see lying around out there, we're going to empower it to make a big difference on carbon emissions and capturing uh, those bad carbon molecules and stuff. I guess they're not bad, but anyhow, uh, <laughs> they are in excess. That's really the problems around climate change. So, um, Morgan, uh, tell, talk to me about that. Yeah, um, so something really important about lawns and sort of an overlooked aspect of them is that while they might look sort of like they're not doing much sitting out there, they actually have the capacity, especially a healthy lawn, which is what we're talking about today, has the capacity to absorb two of the biggest issues when it comes to climate change and climate resilience. Um, So as Rob mentioned, or Dr. Moyer, (laughs) Rob mentioned um, that carbon molecules are in excess in the atmosphere. They're a greenhouse gas as carbon carbon dioxide. Um, and thus, they're causing global warming and climate change effects that are very negative for us. Um, so one of the ways that we can use our lawns to fight climate change is through a process called carbon sequestration, which is when carbon gets sort of taken up or held in the ground through various mechanisms that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but another really important and kind of obvious thing that a lawn can do for you is absorb water. Um, so in the past 50 years, for example, we've seen an excess of extreme weather events such as flash flooding intense storms dramatically increasing in scale, frequency, and intensity. And for this reason, there's been a lot of research in terms of grass's ability to absorb unwanted excess climate water, Um, so water that's falling from the sky at a rate that we really just can't handle, especially with our infrastructures and especially due to increased urbanization. Places like Houston, Texas, or New Orleans, which are overly paved, don't have any place for the water to go, and it causes even more severe effects. Um, of storms and such. So lawns can act for us as natural barriers and sponges that promote climate resilience, and it's a really important resource that we ought to be using a little bit better than we do now. Um, So you can think of a metaphor that we like to use is that um, strong soil ecosystems are like thick towels, and the thick towels are more able to uh, soak up stormwater than our, you know, a thin, weak soil system, which maybe can soak up a little bit, or even worse than that would be just a paved surface or a patio. So we're definitely encouraging all of our listeners, to get rid of your cement patios, plant some healthy grass, and let it grow strong, let it grow deep roots, as Julia referenced. The higher your grass grows, the deeper the roots are, and thus the more water it's able to absorb. So that's another really important thing that we want to emphasize. Let your grass grow tall, let their roots grow deep and strong so that they can absorb as much water as possible. Um, And there's been a lot of interesting studies, including um, in some of the national parks in South Africa, about how a lawn can be just as absorptive as a a natural grassland. So don't undersell the ability of your lawn to soak up water. It it does a great job, and you have to empower it to do so by letting it grow long, strong, and not over-fertilizing it so its roots grow deep. Wow. So if I stop fertilizing my lawn with these bags of nitrogen-based fertilizer and only give it a little bit of slow release in the spring or fall, um, it's going to be like a grassland and and protecting us from um, extreme weather events, and maybe we'll last longer during dry periods and droughts and stuff. Absolutely. You don't want to so spoil your lawn. This is great. You know, home, home on the range. I've now got the grass range right in my backyard. Exactly. Um, this, is, this is really exciting. So how do we further this grassroots rebellion of uh, 
against climate change uh, by um, by looking into the soil and, and maybe healthier microbes down there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we were talking about before, soil also has the ability to absorb um, a lot of the excess carbon in the atmosphere, which is currently in a gaseous state as carbon dioxide. Um, so through a process that we all hopefully have learned in high school biology, um, photosynthesis, we take um, from the air, we take carbon dioxide and convert it into carbon sugar, which is stored in the soil. So it's basically that if we allow our grass to grow, again, as I've said many times, deeper roots and taller, we'll be able to let our grass grow more foliage or more leaves. Um, and for that reason, more photosynthesis will take place and we'll be able to literally with our lawns suck some of the harmful carbon out of the atmosphere and keep it in the ground. Um, so that's a really important process that's happening already. It's one of the best ways our earth is naturally fighting climate change for us. And it's up to us to empower our lawns to keep doing that and to put up bigger, thicker grasses so that they'll be able to uptake more carbon. Um, so something else that is interesting that we've been talking about here at um, the Ocean River Institute is the Marin Carbon Project, which was actually brought to our attention by our guest on our last week's podcast, Carol Roselle. And this is a project that's really interesting. It's happening in Marin County, California. And what it is is that it's a group of um, different farms and organizations that have committed to doing high-carbon sequestration agriculture. So promoting grass to absorb as much carbon as possible from the atmosphere is a really interesting and responsible way to be agriculturalist. And it's a really good movement because um, carbon sequestration is one of the most important frontiers in reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions, which are in excess and are incredibly powerful in causing warming effects. Um, and another thing to think about is that no-till farming, a practice we also briefly discussed on last week's podcast, um, or last week's radio show, rather, is a way that we can also not release as much carbon from the soils, and we can sort of... So if you mess with your grass lot, you'll tear up its roots, and you'll allow more carbon to be released in a gaseous and a physical state. Um, but if you leave your grasses be, you fertilize them minimally, and you touch them minimally, they'll be able to uptake far more carbon. Um, and another thing that we were thinking about when we're talking about how our soil can be an important absorber of all bad things climate change related is that municipalities across the country, including, as I've mentioned, New Orleans, Houston, Texas, and some counties in Florida are working on lawn absorption solutions for their flooding issues. So their various legislation has been passed in the different counties, and there's a lot of grassroots, pun intended, organizing about um, how areas are working to tear up some of their impervious, um, impermeable surfaces like asphalt pavement and replacing them with soft surfaces like lawns um, because we need a solution that's soft on our feet and soft on our environment so it's able to absorb as much carbon and water as possible. Okay, well, Jesse's cracking up over there. <laughs> uh, well said. Um, yeah, so I live in Somerville, which is got more asphalt per square feet than any other town in Massachusetts. Uh, so we've been working at trying to help people in their backyards take out the cement patios and stuff and replace them with, with lawns. Who knew? Woo! <laughs> I think we had a question for Jesse coming yeah. up. Uh, well, we, we had a, So that was the microbes. Yes, yeah, so the mighty microbes are helping our lawns out there and... Uh, so it's good to have healthy lawns. And then, uh, okay, so going back to the beginning was that we were going to, we started this whole campaign years ago because too much nitrogen was harming the ocean. And the, the big source was lawns. And the other sources are uh, septic sewage and um, agriculture. And then at our Rivers Alliance meeting yesterday, it was brought to my attention how that people who get their leaves blow into wetlands and the Mystic River, especially, 
was telling me about this, but that becomes the main source of nitrogen for the, for the river. Uh, so it's important that if you're doing your yard cleaning with yard waste, don't put the waste in a, in a waterway or wetland, but put it in a bag and put it out there for your municipal pickup uh, because the, the aquatic life will thank you. Um, so, Jesse, um, yeah, so we know that um, fertilized pollution causes algae blooms. Um, how does... How do al- does this tie back into climate change? Um, actually, yes. So it was interesting to learn about how grass itself can help fight against climate change by capturing carbon. But there's another way to decrease these greenhouse gas emissions that's kind of a roundabout way of doing it. So we know that, as we said before, nitrogen runoff causes algal blooms. But what we don't know is what how those climate... What we do know is how those algal blooms affect the atmosphere as well. So I'm going to tell the story of Lake Erie to provide a kind of case study for, for how algal blooms can affect well, climate great. change. Lake Erie is a very shallow lake so that it's, it's prone to, it's been one of the, had the worst algal blooms of the Great Lakes. Yeah. So just to give you a little bit of background, there's... Lake Erie has struggled with algal blooms for decades now. There's a periodic, as what I mentioned earlier, dead zone, something that kills all marine life within it due to algal blooms, and it's been there for generations. Um, in the 1960s, there is an extreme problem of algal bloom due to agriculture and point source contamination, but scientists figured out where the biggest causes were coming from and improved farming practices and things began to look up. However, with population growth and urbanization, uh, runoff from cities and fertilizers just kept increasing throughout the years. The Lake Erie has continuously struggled with these harmful algal blooms. In 2014, uh, the annual algal bloom was one of its worst. Um, I talked about earlier how algal blooms not only are bad for the environment, but can be bad for people too. Well, this one was devastating. It contaminated a water supply that fed over 400,000 people who were without water for days because of just this nitrogen runoff. Time magazine in 2010 warned that Lake Erie was in danger of dying by suffocation by algal blooms. And yeah, so it's a serious problem. And some, something that is less talked about um, is that algal blooms actually contribute to climate change. So, How is that? <laughs> so as the algae dies, it decomposes and releases the gas methane, which is a greenhouse gas. It lasts less time in the atmosphere than carbon, but it holds far more heat. So this is something that's in our near future. And so Lake Erie actually contributes almost 90,000 kilograms of methane every single day from the lake, just from algal blooms. This is two-thirds of the total methane emissions from Lake Erie. So this is making a serious impact on our climate and our environment. Um, If you just stop those blooms. Yeah. How could we do that? (laughs) But also another, this is not an issue just contained to Lake Erie. This is global and local and nationwide. Um, Nitrogen pollution and algal blooms have been increasing at shocking rates. Global uh, 
the EPA says that global methane emissions will increase 30 to 90 percent over the next century due to this increase in nutrient pollution and algal blooms, unless we act. Um, This methane emissions increase is expected to equal a third of our annual CO2 emissions from fossil fuels. So not only is it important, but it makes a big difference. So this is why we have to help stop nitrogen runoff. How might we do that, Rob? No, go ahead. You want to say something? Oh, no. I was just going to say, Jesse, it's interesting you mentioned that methane is something that comes from um, from algal blooms and something that contributes to climate change because methane is the big sort of face of the vegetarian movement. You know, people are often complaining that animal agriculture is a huge contributor of methane CH4, and it is. And it's interesting that something as inconspicuous as algae is doing the same thing as animal agriculture in terms of putting a really potent greenhouse gas into the atmosphere at rates that we really cannot tolerate when we're trying yeah. to combat climate change. Well, also, you're a hypocrite if you're not, if you're refusing to, eat, to have cows and cattle, and yet you're fertilizing your lawn because <laughs> that fertilizer is causing the algae to bloom and put on methane. Right. So, but it's, I mean, people don't know this, and so that's the purpose yeah. of the program, is people don't understand that what they do in their own yard can have any negative effects. But uh, that's a big one is that uh, it's causing algal blooms off the lawns and and the algal blooms are releasing a lot of methane. Um, So time for another break. So as we worry about the rising methane, oh, so I think that um, the EPA thinks it's going to increase uh, not because the amount of nitrogen runoff is increasing because conservation commissions are getting better at keeping it off agriculture and and septic systems and stuff. But with global warming, with increasing temperatures, the algae will grow faster, die sooner, and create more methane sooner. So that's another reason for trying to lessen how much greenhouse gases we have so that they don't, the heat, the rising temperatures don't keep rising as fast as they have. So, What we're going to do about it is what we're going to talk about when we come back after this break. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we are fighting climate change with our lawns today. And the secret is, don't be giving your lawn lots of fertilizer. It doesn't need it once it's established. And if it's hungry, you can give it some slow-release nitrogen fertilizer uh, in the spring and fall, but just a modest amount, like a half pound per thousand square feet. And um, what was the other thing? Um, Cut high. Well, cut high. Well, yeah. So take care of your. Oh, so if you take care of your lawn, it won't pollute, and then it'll be able to grow stronger, and do a better job of capturing carbon, and, and capturing stormwater, or being a sponge, or as uh, Morgan, you called it a, a blanket. Uh, oh yeah. It's so it, yeah, it's a thicker sort of a thicker a towel. towel. Right. Yeah, right. It absorbs more water right. and carbon. It's right. It's much better to talk about. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we're inviting you to join with us uh, lawn by lawn. Person, you don't even have to have a lawn to join with us, but we're asking you to join with us in pledging to uh, not fertilize your lawns uh, unless it's with a little bit of slow release and to let your lawn be healthy and to take on climate change. And if you want to pledge with us, uh, we have a webpage set up uh, at www.oceanriver.org. And you'll see a picture of uh, a grassy lawn on the top of Prospect Hill in Somerville, a little crenulated castle, which is where the, the American flag first flew over Washington's troops at, when they were assembled in Cambridge. And a bunch of ragtaggled activists up there <laughs> um, and looking fierce with their lawn. And um, click on that, and um, you'll find more information. And then click on that, and you'll find our, our petition, or our pledge, rather, to sign on. Yeah. Um, so we've been working sort of on a way to convince different municipalities and people all over. We're starting in Massachusetts because that's where we're located. But ideally, we'll have people worldwide signing this pledge because it really is more simple than we think that um, these steps both promote a healthier, stronger lawn and also promote a healthier, stronger environment. So 
it's intuitive that your lawn is going to be healthier and more self-sufficient and will be polluting less. And we want everyone to be aware of that and to not just follow the conventions of putting a ton of fertilizer on because that's what you think you're supposed to do without really questioning it and noticing what your lawn actually needs. And, you know, there's a lot in the media today about simple steps you can take to fight climate change, you know, use single use, don't use single use everything, but no one ever talks about lawns. And this is going to make a really big impact, not in terms of, yes, atmospheric pollution, but also just in your own home and being able to adapt to that. So there's a lot of benefits, including saving money by using less fertilizer. But Not buying fertilizer. Exactly. That's big money. <laughs> so it's a win, 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 win situation. And this is why we're just trying to get the word out. Jesse's right. What you're doing is you're adding to your arsenal of weapons taking on climate change. Adding your lawn to the arsenal. Or it's like adding an a, a arrow to your quiver of, of different arrows that you're shooting off. So in addition to reducing fossil fuel use, you know, support your, uh, and think about um, pulling out hard surfaces. Uh, that's not part of the pledge, but we ask you to think about um, are there opportunities to replace hard surfaces with lawns that will do more to capture uh, carbon and, and buffer stuff that the hard surface won't do. Isn't it great that you can help the environment? Uh, just not doing something. <laughs> like the yes, most passive step, but it's always active in the switch, but it's right that Jesse's correct that you end up doing less work for yourself and doing a thing that's way better for the environment. So good for you. Yeah, after you're tired from walking for everywhere you didn't drive, yeah, exactly. get back on your lawn in bare feet and enjoy the, the grass uh, and, and know that even that is helping to uh, incrementally reduce the uh, release of carbon gases and capture Right. Uh, we've been going, uh, we're really looking for people in Massachusetts because there are 351 municipalities in Massachusetts, and one of them is not fertilizing their lawns. And Arlington has agreed to um, change their wetland regs so that the developments next to wetlands can't not, are not permitted to, to fertilize their lawns. And so now we're circling, and this came after writing, after talking with about 87 different municipalities and meeting with nine of them. Arlington stepped out first. Uh, so we've uh, been talking to the local newspaper or the local news, what do you call these things now? The newspaper? News site. News site, right. So the, the news site, uh, Your, Arlington. Arlington, Your Arlington, has put together a piece about this. Hopefully other news sites will pick up. But if... So the long and the short of it is we're going town by town in Massachusetts. And we um, are looking for other people in Massachusetts to sign the pledge so that when we're in your town, uh, we'll let you know ahead of time. But we can also tell the commissioners that already, you know, these individuals of your community are on board with this. Absolutely. And, Jesse, what are some ways that we're sort of getting the word out and trying to make sure that people sign on to our petition. Yeah, so I feel like right now the hardest part is just letting people know. So aside from our lovely podcast we have going on right now, we really just want to put emphasis on education and outreach. So we have um, some tabling events coming up that you guys can maybe talk about later. Um, yes, we want to spread the news of the Your Arlington success story of getting these laws passed uh, we're also thinking of reaching out to conservation committees, previous people who we've worked with to ask for their advice and their 
their suggestions for how to reach the local communities, such as maybe flyers or giveaways or I don't know. But right now, we're just really just trying to get this this uh, piece about Arlington and this pledge spread all around. And how can listeners help? Um, listeners can help by uh, signing the pledge themselves, which you can find in every place Ocean River. We're going to be publicizing it on our website via this podcast. Um, our website, once again, is oceanriver.org. It'll also be on our Facebook page, Ocean River Institute. Um, and this weekend, this Saturday, we will be partnering with the Harvard Square Business Association because it is World Ocean Day. Woohoo! Bet you didn't know that when you were listening to this water podcast. Um, so um, this Saturday from 1 to 3, Rob and I will be tabling in Harvard Square at Brattle Square. Um, and we have a bunch of really fun ocean-themed activities. We'll be having people physically sign the petition, so you can, or the pledge, rather, so you can feel... Like, you're really doing your part, and we want you to tell all of your friends, lawn havers and non-lawn havers, that fertilizer's bad, and we're going to try to fix it. That's right. We're going to be in Harvard on Brattle Square, which is where Brattle Street bends away from Elliott Street, um, right in Harvard Square from uh, 1 to 3 o'clock, maybe a little later. There's going to be live music there. Um, We're bringing back the Science Science Wednesdays, Ocean Science Wednesdays that we did last summer, where we're going to have pint glasses of water, and one glass will have salt at the salinity of the Mediterranean Ocean, and then we'll introduce icebergs in the form of an ice cube and some food coloring and uh, looking at what makes the ocean currents move and um, why the importance of different water bodies and the floating of ships, what plimsoll lines are, and how you got to be careful how lo- where the water line is on your ship if you're leaving from uh, Newfoundland in the wintertime and steaming for off of uh, Amazon where it's fresh water and stuff. Uh, so that's some hands-on stuff uh, with flotation and rotations and currents moving around. And then uh, Morgan and I are going to be helping you uh, get your lawn on board to fight climate change. Um, also, um, we're getting the word out about communities needing to change their practices. And what you can do to help us with that is to uh, post on Facebook, you know, stuff you take off our webpage or just spread the word that um, we're looking for people to speak up, especially in Massachusetts. But frankly, uh, any town, you know, in in Florida, they fertilize four times a year, not just the short season we have up here, uh, but they needn't be putting the fast release on it. And so wherever you are, um, but also wherever you are, if you know someone back in Massachusetts, please help us get the word out um, on the social media about that. You want to add to that? Um, I, well, just something that I've noticed throughout this conversation is that um, the legislative process of getting towns to sign on, whether it's amending their um, wetland permits or, you know, participating or encouraging their townspeople to participate in our initiative, does go really slowly, but unfortunately, the impacts of eutrophication, algal blooms, and all of the negative effects of, clim- of uh, climate change effects about using fertilizer do not go slowly. Um, and for that reason, we need to make sure we're having people sign our pledge quickly. It's being promoted. So if you sign it, share it with your friends on Facebook, um, and just really think long and hard about why we're dumping so much chemicals on our lawns when we don't need to. Um, and I don't know. Oh, yeah, right. So I forgot to mention that a healthier lawn uh, which is when not being fertilized, uh, puts on more foliage and it makes it more resistant to pests and weeds mm. so that you don't, you know, and don't use Roundup. You can use uh, a gallon of white vinegar, a cup of salt, and a tablespoon of dish soap. Mix that up 
and that there's your herbicide if you need one. Um, and but most importantly is that this is a difficult concept for people to get behind. We understand why a tailpipe of a car is bad for climate change, but we don't understand that what we how we treat our backyard has anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. So it, we're really trying to get the word out. Uh, and it comes down to sitting down with each town, and their immediate reaction is, we're all already doing everything's right and stuff. I don't need someone who just figured it out to come tell me what to do that I'm already doing. So it takes a lot of conversation just to get to the conservation person, bring it to the attention of the conservation committee member. Right. And then we go out to the town and have real, it's real, um, uh, it's, it's uh, retail mm-hmm. communications because everyone's got their own questions, their own take. Uh, as in Watertown, where they thought it was that they were doing the organic things, where they were home free and stuff, uh, we have to be respectful of where people are coming from. We're not asking them to make wholesale changes, modifications. So by you commenting and, and being engaged in this, it helps to broaden our way of explaining this to people. And it certainly makes a big difference in local towns in local towns, if a local person speaks to it, because they, they talk in the local vernacular, they can relate. Right. And it's also about changing the aesthetics of your expectations. So if your grass is a little bit longer, sort of like reframing how you think that your home should look. Um, a climate-resilient lawn isn't necessarily the shortest, most manicured one, but it's one that's actually stronger and actually going to save you money and be a, a better resource for you in the long run. So climate change-resistant lawns might not look like what we are used to, but they look like what we need to be doing for the future. Right. So, um, yeah, so remember, oceanriver.org, that's our website. Uh, If you have questions uh, or thoughts or suggestions, you're welcome to uh, write to me. It's rob at oceanriver, that's one word, dot O-R-G. And, Jesse, I want to thank you for talking about the whole science of uh, methane gases coming out of algal blooms tying it into climate change. We, we haven't really done that before. Thank you, Rob. And, and, and so if you have questions for Jesse about those processes, um, put them into the petition. Uh, put them into the pledge. We'll have a place there where you can comment. Uh, you're welcome to uh, correspond with us there. And, and uh, Morgan, uh, thank you for connecting us with Julie down there in um, the UNH Extension Service and the UNH Sea Grant uh, down at Odeon State Park and and, um, up at Durham and so forth um, on lawn care practices. So if people have more questions about that, put them in. Great. And we'll see you, everyone who's listening, we'll see you all Saturday in Brattle Square in Harvard. Um, And we're going to talk some ocean science and we're going to sign our pledge. We need pledgers, so come on by. Or uh, just visit us online. Um, and send us a message and sign the pledge. Um, and that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. Please take care of yourselves, and then take a moment to take care of your lawn and maybe the rest of the planet while you're at it. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.